Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. I thought I might stay over tonight. Why? Because we're girlfriend boyfriend. To do what? I'm actually not sure. Ryan Gosling and Margot Robbie there as Ken and Barbie in Greta Gerwig's Barbie. What is Gerwig up to with her movie about the iconic toy? Like Ken, we're actually not sure. But we'll find out soon. Gerwig, Christopher Nolan, and Wes Anderson, all high-profile directors with new films coming out over the next couple of months. But what about some under-the-radar directors and titles? We've got our top five summer movie questions. Plus, the next film in our Sight & Sound Top 100 Marathon. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting, where we hope you'll come for the summer movie preview and stay for the Tarkovsky. <laughs> do, you, do you think in 1975 they were doing summer movie previews and leading with Mirror, Tarkovsky's Mirror? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe so, Josh. Later in the show, we'll continue our marathon devoted to films that made last year's Sight & Sound Top 100 greatest films of all time. This week, it is Andre Tarkovsky's 1975 film, Mirror. Also coming up, a new poll that looks ahead to this year's Cannes Film Festival that kicks off next week. Quickly, here's your brief reminder to help us reach new listeners by leaving us a rating and a positive review. We want to thank A. Rodriguez, Jangly, and G-Man8119, who all left positive reviews for us on Apple Podcasts. In their five-star review, Jangly writes, Great discussions that tend to be so well-considered and reasonable that even when they're clearly wrong, I still enjoy listening to them. That happens? That happens here? We're wrong sometimes? <laughs> I didn't think so, but oh well. G-Man 8119 added, I started listening in 2008, a young, full, head of haired man of 27. I'm still listening in 2023, a bald, exhausted 42-year-old with multiple frown lines where hair should be. Adam and Josh feel like family to me. And because we're family, G-Man, we would never say anything disparaging about those multiple frown lines and the balding head. No. I mean, think of all the movies you've gained in that time. Some things have been lost, the movies you've gained. Focus on that. (laughs) If you want to share your rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, we would greatly appreciate it. Let's get into our summer movie preview with some poll results. A couple of weeks back, we gave you three options, three big summer 2023 movies. Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, Greta Gerwig's Barbie, and Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. We asked you to pick one and only one, and here are the stakes. We love our stakes here on Film Spotting. The other two, you can never, ever see. It will be as if they don't exist. And that will be the case, according to voters. For Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, only 24% of the vote, and Greta Gerwig's Barbie, 
only got 31% of the vote gone. Forget those ever were proposed, that they were ever filmed, post-production. None of it happened because film spotting listeners, they chose Nolan's Oppenheimer, 44% of the vote. That's the one of the three we're going to get, apparently. And as you may recall, I said I was going with Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer myself, and I knew the stakes, of course. And yet it was only today when I was looking over these words in front of me and thinking about it again that I realized, wait a second, you're telling me that I would have a Wes Anderson film I didn't get to see? Mm-hmm. And? and now I know why you went with Asteroid City. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it was pretty clear logic <laughs> for me. But how about people who are just kind of in love with this new burgeoning career of Gerwig? Voters, cut it short. It's done. Mm-hmm. No Barbie for us. <laughs> well, let's get into some of the reasoning. Lucas Singleton says, what a tough question. All of these I'm excited for, but I have to go with Oppenheimer. I find myself either blown away or disappointed by Nolan's films. But when he nails it. Memento, The Prestige, Dunkirk, he nails it. I'm also glad to see his longtime collaborator, Killian Murphy, get the leading role in a big summer movie. We also heard from Maria. I'm a physicist. I'm biased. I'm really eager to see what Nolan can do with the material and the story of the Manhattan Project. I'm not too sure about this Barbie film, having seen the trailer. I was never a fan of the toy. Obviously, I want to see everything from Wes Anderson, but I have voted Oppenheimer. Thank you, Maria. Michael McCoy says, I don't even know what I'd say if 10 years ago you told me I'd be more excited for a film adaptation of Barbie than a new three-hour Nolan opus or the latest from Wes Anderson that may somehow be his greatest cast yet. But 10 years ago, I didn't have three daughters. And even more to the point, we did not yet have an auteur in Greta Gerwig. Well stated. Fair enough. Here's Jared Young from Ottawa. A bleak and colorless World War II movie by Chris Nolan. Seen it. A colorful, quirky Wes Anderson flick with a cast of thousands? Seen it. A summer blockbuster about a Mattel toy franchise directed by Greta Gerwig? Faceplant or Masterpiece? It's an absolute must-see. Here's Chad Hyzenga in Milwaukee. Boys will watch Oppenheimer. Men will watch Barbie. Stolen from someone on Reddit. (laughs) Okay. I I like that Chad is crediting his thievery there. Matt O'Brien just said, it's Barbie. I will not be taking any further questions at this time. We'll move on then to our friend, Chicago's Taylor Cole, who, of course, has to do this in musical fashion. He says, take me down to the asteroid city where the sky is dark and the stars are pretty. And now that will be in my head for the rest of the day. Thank you, Taylor. (laughs) Yes, it will. We do these previews in the form of our top five questions about the summer movie season. And as we noted earlier, we do tend to like to spotlight films that aren't the big tentpole releases aren't the big ones that every cinephile knows is coming out like Oppenheimer and Barbie and Asteroid City. I went back and looked at my questions from January, looking at the whole movie year, Josh, and I only had one that was connected to summer and it was about Barbie. I wondered if Greta Gerwig could start her solo directing career going three for three. That was my number one question of the entire movie year. We will get that one answered here in just a couple months. What's on the slate for you? I did have two questions in that preview that related to summer titles and Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, not surprisingly, was one of those. At the time, there was still a possibility of getting a second Wes film this year, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. Not sure that'll make it in 2023, but I did ask beginning of this year if there could be such a thing as too much Wes. And then the other question I had relating to a summer release was Nicole Holof-Center's You Hurt My Feelings. I want to know if she and Julia Louis-Dreyfus 
could make movie magic again after their wonderful enough said. So yeah, I'm touching on some other titles here in my five questions, beginning with a fairly big release. I want to know, will Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse succumb to multiverse fatigue? Mm. 2018 Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, it was free from the MCU. And it boasted an incredibly unique visual design, combining these comic book aesthetics with dynamic digital animation, but still looked like nothing else. It was the freshest, funniest movie to come on the superhero scene in a while. Of course, it did rely on the multiverse conceit. A portal had opened in time and space, allowing six variations of Spider-Man from these parallel dimensions to come together. That worked in Spider-Verse. But since... This idea has come to define the most recent phase in the MCU, exhausting a fair amount of viewers, I think, Adam, including the two of us. So I'm just wondering, how is this multiverse going to play in Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse? This time, Miles Morales, voiced once again by Shameik Moore, heads out into the multiverse where he encounters even more Spider-People. So it's built into the movie's very concept. The plot, maybe, not so enticing, but I did watch the trailer for this. And I have to admit, absolute thrill to be dropped back into this Spider-Verse aesthetic. So that has me very excited. And interestingly, on that note, in terms of the animation, the three directors of the 2018 film have been replaced by three new names, Joaquin Dos Santos, Justin K. Thompson, and Kemp Powers. And that last one, Kemp Powers, jumped out to me in particular because he was the co-director and one of the writers on Soul, which is one of my top five Pixar films. So some familiarity in the setup here, but also some promising freshness with Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. That one opens on June 2. Kemp Powers, Josh, also the writer of a film I loved from 2020, One Night in Miami. That's right. Top yeah. 10 of that year. Maybe not any crossover with the film you're talking about, though I like to think of Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X and Jim Brown as superheroes, potentially in their own right. And it was kind of a kind of a multiverse setup there, I guess, kind bringing them all together setup. from different areas of life. My number five movie question, everything about the title and what I'm going to say about it is going to make your head explode. I am Great. envisioning new levels of Josh tisk tisking. Oh, boy. But here we go. <laughs> You're not even going to believe I'm going to say these words, Josh, because we've never talked about this title at all in the history of the show. Will the release of The Equalizer 3 <laughs> compel me to confess that I do, in fact, have a guilty pleasure, and that guilty pleasure is watching our greatest actor coolly dispatch bad guys. Hmm, okay. That greatest actor is Denzel Washington. And I want to be clear. I don't actually envision a world where I buy a ticket and sit down in a movie theater to watch The Equalizer 3, which now finds Washington's Robert McCall living peacefully in Southern Italy until the mafia disturbs that peace and the retired assassin has to return to his violent ways. Of course he I'm does. not... I'm not even sure I envision a world where I sit down on my couch, Josh, and watch The Equalizer 3 when it hits streaming or VOD. I will probably end up consuming it the same way I consume The Equalizer and The Equalizer 2. And this is the boomerous thing you're ever going to hear me say on the show in the form of video clips on Facebook Watch when I'm doom scrolling before <laughs> I bed. I don't even know what any of that means. 
<laughs> watching it on Facebook Watch because the algorithm once served me up a video from the Equalizer, and I watched it to completion. And with each new one or repeat even that came up, I watched those to completion as well. I've always said there should be no such thing as guilty pleasures. If you like something, you like it, own it. And look, these movies star Denzel. He's not phoning it in. I don't think he's done any other sequels in his life, but he's been committed to the Equalizer franchise. That is interesting. They're all directed by Antoine Fuqua, whose best work probably was that first collaboration with Denzel on Training Day. They are stylishly crafted. The first one has a 60% on Rotten Tomatoes, just fresh. Our friend Matt Singer gave it three and a half stars, even if he gave it the same kind of backhanded praise that I just did. He says, this is what's going to happen. This ridiculous, hilarious movie is going to play on cable. You are going to reluctantly watch it. You're going to end up watching the whole thing, even though you have other things to do. Then it's going to play on cable again, and you're going to watch it again, particularly the later scenes when it basically becomes Home Alone and Home Depot, a.k.a. Home Depot alone. Yes, Matt. Yes. <laughs> I think what I feel guilty about is that the main reason to watch these movies is to see Denzel spiritually reprise his character for Man on Fire, the Tony Scott film, that character, John Creasy, another assassin, former assassin, revenge tale or vengeance tale. Christopher Walken in that film says about Creasy, a man can be an artist in anything, food, whatever. It depends on how good he is at it. Creasy's art is death. He's about to paint his masterpiece. <laughs> well, McCall's art is also death. And that's the canvas that Washington and Fuqua are painting on. And why that brings me any pleasure to watch, I'm not fully prepared to unpack in this summer preview. But I'm going to get my fix at the end of summer, just before Labor Day, September 1st, or shortly after when the video clips hit Facebook. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll be eager for your report at that point. I, I wish I could rouse myself. I'm going to disappoint you. I, I would have to have any sort of familiarity with any of the Equalizer installments to properly mm -hmm. tisk tisk. But I will, <laughs> I will get close to irate about the mention of Man on Fire. Terrible movie, and I can see the Tony Scott apologist just, you know, yeah. lining up the emails right now. I, I am dig sorry. It. I've, I've never, always dug, never on gotten fire. on board with that, and it's maybe the most intrusive Tony Scott film ever, where it's just like. Yeah, I know you're directing this. Can you just move out of the out of the way a little bit, just a little bit, so I could watch this movie? Is that is that enough anger for you? It's not directed at Equalizer three, but I, I don't I'll know. take it. I'm trying to it. trying to keep you happy here. <laughs> All right, number four. How awkward can Bottoms get? Bottoms, if you're unfamiliar, <laughs> it reteams the creative minds behind Shiva Baby. You've got director Emma Seligman and star Rachel Sennett. In that 2021 cringe comedy, Senate played a queer college student who's about to graduate, and she's forced to endure all sorts of indignities and humiliations, some, some self-inflicted, when she attends a funeral with her parents. For Bottoms, Seligman and Senate, they wrote the screenplay together, and this one is about two unpopular, dorky high school seniors who set up a fight club at their school in an elaborate attempt to woo some cheerleaders. I'm not quite sure how that works, but that's what I read, and I'll be eager to find out the logistics there. Now, starring alongside Senate as one of those students is Ayo Edebiri. Senate, you know, 
comically brilliant, not only in Shiva Baby, but also among the ensemble cast of the horror comedy Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. For me, she was the standout there. She's just an incredibly unique and exciting talent. I'm not as familiar with Etta Beery, aside from a two-episode stint she did on Abbott Elementary. After Shiva Baby, though, I do trust in Senate and Seligman to mine this sort of material, not only for awkward laughs, but honesty and empathy about negotiating identity and sexuality at an awkward age. So I'm really looking forward to Bottoms. That won't be out towards until the end of summer, August 25. Yeah, I had this one a little higher on my list, but let's go with it now. Let's keep the Bottoms trend going. My number four summer movie question, will No Hard Feelings and Bottoms revive and reclaim the hard R sex comedy? Alternate Bottoms-specific questions, what is the first rule of Bottoms, and can we talk about Bottoms? You said it. It's all about these these two queer high school students who basically try to recruit cheerleaders into this club, really, because they want to sleep with them. Of course, I'm eager, because I, too, am a fan of Senate from Bodies, 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 and Shiva Baby, and here being reteamed with Emma Seligman, this being her follow-up to Shiva Baby, a film that was our Golden Brick finalist in 21. It was the Listener's Choice vote winner that year as well. That's a no-brainer for me to want to see. No Hard Feelings is a little bit different. If you just showed that to me on paper, I would completely overlook it and ignore it. But I've seen the trailer twice in theaters, and it makes me laugh every time. It stars Jennifer Lawrence as a woman in dire financial straits. I think she's an Uber driver, and she gets her car taken away. She ends up answering a Craigslist ad from parents, desperately trying to find someone to date their teenage son. We've just been so worried about our son. He's going to Princeton in the fall. Oh, I've heard of it. Yeah, we tried everything to bring him out of his shell. He doesn't come out of his room. He doesn't talk to girls. He doesn't drink. So when you say date him, do you mean date him or date him? Yes. Date him. Date him hard. Okay. I'll date his brains out. Now, Lawrence was in Don't Look Up, and I suppose that's technically a comedy. She was in Joy, maybe even some consider Mother. A comedy? I don't know. But this is, it seems to me, relatively new territory for her in terms of just straight ahead laughs and maybe, you know, sort of uncomfortable laughs. And there's really nobody better suited for that type of material than her, because if you've seen her on Between Two Ferns or any talk show appearances, she's naturally hilarious. Mm hmm self-deprecating, willing to embarrass herself. She goes for it every time she's sharp-witted. That cast as well, not only Jennifer Lawrence, but the parents are Matthew Broderick and Laura Benanti. Natalie Morales is in it. From the bear, Eben Moss Bacharach, Hassan Minhaj. I didn't see this writer-director's 2019 movie, Good Boys, but he's an Office alum, Gene Stepnitsky. And these, both of these films here, Josh, are women-driven, raunchy sex comedies. Bottoms explicitly turning the teen sex comedy on its head with the two leads being women and queer. The touchstones for these types of films are super bad mm -hmm. in 07. Otherwise, you're looking back at the 80s and 90s. Yeah, American like Pie, maybe. American Pie, maybe. Yeah. You're right. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Wet Hot American Summer. But these are going to push the envelope a little bit 
and maybe we'll do it in a way that is as hilarious and perhaps as endearing as a movie like Superbad was. And that was 15, 16 years ago. I'm ready for some raunchy fun. We'll see it on June 27th with no hard feelings. And as you said, Bottoms, it seems to be a case where there's a little bit of confusion. You can find some sites that do say it'll come out August 25th. A lot of others still show it as TBD, but it seems like it will come out this summer. And I'm eager for both. Yeah, hopefully both will be a lot of fun. And as to Lawrence, you know, in terms of comic performances, it's the talk show appearances you mentioned, but also this is one of the reasons we split violently on American Hustle, but I loved her so much in that. And I regard that as mostly a comic performance, actually, even though the movie is is clearly mostly a drama. So, yeah, she definitely has it in her. All right, my number three, maybe this is my equalizer question for you, Adam. Not that I think it's going to make you upset, um, but somewhat similar territory here. Will you be Team J-Lo or Team Affleck this summer? And <laughs> I yes, can already Adam, tell you. I'm way more interested in the Affleck. Oh, Sorry. Come on. I, now, let me give you some reasons to consider okay. before you jump. Let's see if you can team change my mind. And you do have to choose, mind you. I know whether of you course. end up watching this on Facebook Uh snooze or whatever it is you do late at night you got to choose one of these all right the benefer battle at the box office this summer jennifer lopez is the mother she plays an assassin who comes out of hiding to protect her daughter opening this weekend may 12 on netflix director nikki carroll made whale rider and disney's live action mulan it also stars gail garcia bernal and paul racy of sound of metal ben affleck's hypnotic He plays a detective who uncovers a secret government program while searching for his missing daughter. This one opens the same day, though it will be in theaters. Robert Rodriguez of El Mariachi from Dust Till Dawn, Spy Kids, Sin City. He directs. So, yeah, I want to hear your logic. You've made your choice, Adam. I mean, I don't know if it's just, you know, you think Affleck is more attractive than Lopez. I don't know if you prefer Rodriguez as a director. The plots don't seem to really help us choose here, but... Why Why is it hypnotic for you in this in this mom and dad fight? You said it. It's the director, Robert Rodriguez. And not that I put him necessarily on a pedestal, but how long has it been since he's made a film? It feels like a long time. I'm curious to see what he'll do with this material. That's reasonable. Yeah, I think, you know, I wasn't a big fan of the live action Mulan. So thinking of Caro as an action director, maybe that's not hugely encouraging. Um, but I'm going to go the other way on this. I'm going to, I'm going to actually, maybe I'll sit down and watch the mother and and we can report back (laughs) together. (laughs) Okay. My number three summer movie question relates to a film that you've already inquired about. You mentioned it here off the top. You posed your question back in January. Will Nicole Holofcener and Julia Louis-Dreyfus make movie magic again with You Hurt My Feelings? My question is, how many awkward spousal drives home from the theater will You Hurt My Feelings provoke? I don't think the trailer was out yet back in January, but now I've, I've watched it a couple times and I've gotten even more excited about this film. You're a bigger fan, much bigger fan of Holofcener's work overall than I am, but we see eye to eye on her last collaboration with... Julie Louis-Dreyfus, enough said. Right there, I'm ready to see them team up again. And it is her first, Hall of Center's first original feature since enough said 10 years ago. The plot description is 
A novelist's longstanding marriage is suddenly upended when she overhears her husband giving his honest reaction to her latest book. The husband here is played by Tobias Menzies, who I have seen in a few things, but don't really feel otherwise that he's an actor whose work I know well, Josh. There's a part in the trailer where we see Louis Dreyfus talking to her friend, played by the wonderful Michaela Watkins. This is after the offending incident. And she asks her friend, what do you do? Your husband's an actor and he's not always great. What do you say to him in those circumstances? And smash cut to Watkins saying to her husband, you were so fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) I just think this is always fascinating terrain, if also potentially problematic terrain. You can have the most healthy, loving, intimate, honest marriage or relationship, but... How honest? What what lines do you draw? What should be revealed? Maybe what shouldn't be revealed? What what do you go ahead and keep for yourself and your partner doesn't need to know? And it truly would benefit them not to know. If this movie hits the right notes, any couple that's been together for a while, no matter what your standing is in life or what your occupations are, whether you have any direct crossover to these characters or not, you should see yourselves in these characters and you're going to be tempted to ask your partner a very pointed question or two on the way home it might be best to resist that temptation (laughs) but i want to hear if any of these questions come up from any of our listeners we can see you hurt my feelings may 26th should we maybe double date this and will that protect us somehow I don't know. That's or will a it make it worse? Point. I don't will know. Will it make it worse? I actually fear it'll make it worse. It'll make everyone even more aware that we're couples. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, that's true. Maybe that was a bad idea. All right, I've got a small film for my number two question. Will Past Lives Live Up to Its Sundance Raves? This is one of the titles I've had my eye on from this year's festival, a Korean drama, the debut of writer-director Celine Song. And yeah, just received a ton of praise at Sundance last January. It's about two childhood friends who are separated when one family moves from Korea to Canada. And then, as I understand it, the movie jumps forward in time, but in increments. And that includes periods when the friends do reconnect at some stage when they're older. So maybe something like, I didn't want to watch the trailer for this. I'm not sure if one's available. I'm dancing around this a little bit for my own protection, but... I'm guessing something maybe like Richard Linklater's Before and Boyhood Projects, but through a specific cultural lens of something like Minari, perhaps. I I don't know. We'll find out. So, yeah, I didn't want to read too much about it, but I did come across um, Alyssa Wilkinson's rave over at Vox coming out of Sundance and just wanted to share a little bit of her report. She writes this, Past Lives is a miraculous little film from A24, steady and slow and haunted in the existential sense by possibilities. Every life choice is an opening of a door into the future, but going through one door means choosing not to enter another, a fact we rarely grasp when we're young. The older we get, the more the unopened doors shimmer in memory, ghostly reminders of the lives we might have led, the people we might have been, the people we might have been with. So, Obviously, all provocative questions and posed in what sounds like a fascinating cultural and formal context. So very excited about Past Lives, which I believe we are getting, it looks like limited release, will be starting on June 2. I'm going to bypass my number two movie question of the summer then and keep the flow going. I'll jump to my number one, which also concerns the same film, Josh. And my question is, 
will past lives follow after sun as back-to-back golden brick winners and films of the year. So you talk about hype. Yeah. Bold, I'm wondering bold. if it could, it could win the golden brick and be our, or at least one of ours, our picks for the best film of the year. It's a film that came up in our preview over the past couple of weeks of the Chicago critics film festival. I heard of it for the first time. I guess I was not paying attention to any of the buzz coming out of Sundance because I discovered it watching the trailer before a new release a few weeks back. And I just kind of swooned watching it. I think actually for what it's worth, I know we both try to avoid trailers. I think you could watch this and not feel like it was really taking away any of the mystery of the film, which is what I don't want a spoiler to do. Celine song, her writing directing debut. You've got Greta Lee, who I enjoyed in a supporting role in Russian doll, that Netflix show. She's, Nora and Teo Yu plays Hai Sung, the childhood sweetheart who she does reconnect with. I wasn't able to get a full vibe on this from the trailer, and I don't want to read too much more about it either, Josh. I don't know how much it does actually focus on increments versus this moment when they do reconnect and come together like two decades later. That's the sense I get from the trailer anyway. But You didn't mention, I don't think, one of the complicating matters here, and one of the reasons why this movie really struck a chord with me watching it, just in terms of the feeling of it, but also thinking about the performers. The complicating factor here is these two people come back together after this long time away, and she's in a very healthy, happy marriage, it seems, to Arthur, who's played by John Majero, someone we love from... Mm -hmm. First Cow, the Kelly Reichert film, saw him again briefly in Showing Up. Very good there. Our friend Brian Tallarico here in Chicago is among the people who have been raving about it over on Rotten Tomatoes. His blurb says, it's a minor film in its scope and structure, and yet it feels so very major. That's something I think we expressed as well about After Sun. Yeah. I think After Sun could be, could be more formally daring than Past Lives. We'll have to find that out. But because that film is so intimate and so confined to this one father-daughter trip where nothing and absolutely everything happens, I feel like there's a correlation potentially to this film. And I saw an interview on Vulture earlier today, a quick interview with the cast and the director. And I liked the way Celine Song and the actress talked about the rehearsal methods and the way they worked on the movie. You've got these two characters in the two men in Nora's life, Majero and you, they were never able or they were never allowed to interact with each other on the set or even when they were doing Zooms. They were doing Zoom meetings about the film. They were not allowed to see each other. So anyone else could be on camera and they had to be off camera because they did want to make it not even so much adversarial, but all this mystique is being built up around the husband and this former love and them meeting. They wanted that moment when even the two quote unquote rival men met each other to be charged with something, you know, with some uncertainty. And so that was a tactic they used. And even with then the two characters, the two sweethearts who were coming back together, Celine Song made it so they weren't really allowed to ever get too close to each other or touch each other. Not even a, hmm. a slap on the back, 
a goodbye hug or a goodbye handshake, whatever it is. She wanted that moment where they touched each other for the first time to also have some mystique and to be charged. So these are not new things that Celine Song invented, new tricks that she invented as a director, but it does speak to the kind of alchemy that even the trailer suggested to me. And this idea of trying to portray feelings that are unspoken and the mysterious and complex nature of human relationships and the allure and the inescapability of our past, it's going to be a tough one, Josh, to downplay my excitement for and and the the high expectations I have for it when I sit down in the theater. What a good story this is. Childhood sweethearts who reconnect 20 years later and realize they were meant for each other. In the story, I would be the evil white American husband standing in the way of destiny. Shut up. He was just this kid in my head for such a long time. I think I just missed him. Did he miss you? Yeah, not, now we're going to have to have to somehow forget all that good context and just go yeah. in fresh, you know, like like I think we both mostly did for After Sun. So definitely, definitely a potential highlight for the summer this year. All right, that brings us to my number one question, and it is: Will John Boyega get back on track with They Cloned Tyrone? I mean. Things look so exciting for Boyega around 2015. He had, just a few years earlier, broken out as the star of the wild British alien invasion comedy Attack the Block. That came out in 2011. So fun. He was so great in it. And he built on that as one of the trio of charismatic new faces in Star Wars The Force Awakens. His Finn, this conflicted stormtrooper, just a brilliantly conceived character within, you know, the extensive way we understood Stormtroopers previously in the franchise. A great idea, and Boyega was perfect for that part, just so deftly performed. Now, to my mind, Finn wasn't as well-served in the following two Star Wars films, and his big play for prestige drama, Catherine Bigelow's Detroit, that didn't quite land the way the filmmakers had hoped. I will acknowledge that I think Boyega is pretty great in one of Steve McQueen's small acts installments, and he had a nice supporting turn as the king in Gina Prince-Bythewood's The Woman King recently. But still, I've been waiting for something that just fully displays the force of his charisma like Attack the Block did and like I think Force Awakens did as well. They clone Tyrone. Sounds promising. On this front, Boyega stars alongside Jamie Foxx and Tayana Paris in what is being described as a science fiction comedy mystery. They play a trio who discover an underground conspiracy in their neighborhood and investigate. I did watch the trailer for this one. Kind of couldn't resist the the colors and costumes I just saw in some of the stills. So I wanted to see how all that moved. And I got vibes of Jordan Peele's Us and then Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You. So you know I'm in if it's making me think of those two movies. Somebody is conducting experiments on us. This is Major League. It's Uncle Mother Sam. We gotta blow the lid off this. We ain't no damn detectives. Yo, yo, that you, girl? Oh, that is you. My bad. The co-writer and the director here is Joel Taylor, who I'm not that familiar with. Previously has mostly done television. We will see what he does with this and how it features Boyega. 
They Clone Tyrone is going to be on Netflix July 21. Interesting. That's a title that did not come up in any of my research, Josh. So I don't know if you had our PAs doing any saw special it. looking. Yeah, I'm trying to remember which. It was in one preview I tracked down. I just can't recall which one. So yeah, not I'm getting a ton of attention, but, but does look intriguing. We'll close it out with my number two movie question of the summer. What would my beloved hump day look like in space and without the sex? <laughs> Something, you know, we've batted around at least once a month. Oh, yeah. The movie here is Biosphere, starring Mark Duplass and Sterling K. Brown. The synopsis, in the not-too-distant future, the last two men on Earth must adapt and evolve to save humanity. Okay, well, that that doesn't really sound like hump day, does it? Well, you do have Mark Duplass, co-starring, of course. You have a director here making her debut, Mel Eslin, who is president of Duplass Brothers Productions. She produced The One I Love, starring Duplass and Elizabeth Moss and Your Sister's Sister, directed by Lynn Shelton and co-starring Mark Duplass. And it does seem to be a movie very much about a sort of masculinity in crisis where you've got these two male friends in space trying to cope with the mundanity of their lives. Emma Stefanski, in her review from the Toronto Film Festival for IndieWire said this, Biosphere is hilarious and earnest, a thought experiment about gender and masculinity and straight male relationships in microcosm, tossing two cis Western men in the pressure cooker of environmental collapse where the social constructs that have ceased to matter still occasionally bubble up to the surface. Ray and Billy jog around the dome, cook meals, tend their garden, and play Super Mario Brothers together in a tentatively mimed pattern of domesticity, a pattern that is complicated and enhanced by a strange and sudden shift in perspective heralded by the appearance of a bright green light in the otherwise featureless sky. Along with Emma's review, Emma Stefanski, it seemed to get generally favorable responses at TIFF. There's 10 reviews currently on Rotten Tomatoes. Only one negative, that's 90%, Josh, the math tells me, and that one negative is again our friend, Brian Tallarico, mm. Jason Bailey, his blurb validates my hump day comparison. Like hump day, it's an act of daring. Bailey says, we're waiting for the movie to cop out because most movies do. This one doesn't. And bravo for that. Again, sounds like just based on the synopsis, maybe a fairly conventional sci-fi film. You watch the trailer, you learn a little bit more about it. You realize this is going to be a weird movie and i think a very weirdly funny film i'm excited for it july 7th how do you think the two of us would do in a in a biosphere like this <laughs> now that that's the most provocative summer movie question yet <laughs> i i'd like to think if we had an internet connection to the criterion channel uh-huh. or or like a a big closet of of dvds we might have a small chance of not we killing might. each other. Can you imagine us just trying to maintain peace and normalcy <laughs> by watching movies and recording a podcast together that no one hears? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how I think about approach this. it now. <laughs> You're just in your closet talking that's, into the void. Right, exactly. <laughs> All right. We do like to mention the titles here that if we were just going on pure excitement, pure eager anticipation, what would those movies be? I don't know if you made a list, Josh, but is it fair to say that in some order, it's the three we already mentioned off the top from the poll question. If you yeah. can only see three, it's it's Asteroid City, it's Barbie, it's Oppenheimer, or that's going to be in the top five for all of us. 
What about a couple others? What rounds out that list for you? Um, you know, past lives, which we've yeah. mentioned, it's my number four. Yeah, and I think I don't know. I, I want to say Dial of Destiny, the Indiana Jones. That was Jones, my number five. That was my but, five. But I, I feel like I shouldn't. I feel like I don't know. But yeah, let's. I'll just say it. I'll, I'll just admit who I am. Yeah, go with it. You don't have to be ashamed. And Yahoo in their summer movie preview, their first line of their comments about Dial of Destiny did the work for us. Will Dial of Destiny be more Raiders of the Lost Ark than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Now I know that we are both, compared to the rest of the world, defenders of Crystal Skull. That doesn't mean I still don't want it to be way more Raiders of the Lost Ark. I would agree with that. That's fair. Okay. Do you have any other honorable mentions, other questions you want to throw out? Yeah, sure. I, I do wonder if Elemental will be too similar to Inside Out. This is Pixar's summer film, and it's set in a city where the elements, so fire, water, land, air, all live together. Maybe a little bit too much like emotions, you know, as characters from Inside Out. I don't know. I'm still intrigued. Obviously, it's Pixar. I'm also wondering what Tom Cruise is going to jump off of or out of or into in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. I don't want to know. I want to be surprised. I want to be stunned. So I've been avoiding any featurettes or anything on that one. And yeah, in terms of Dial of Destiny, I'm working on for the day job at Think Christian, a theology of Indiana Jones. I don't know what that means yet. I'm only two movies in and I'm hoping maybe Dial of Destiny will help me unlock that when I finally get to see that one. It would seem, Josh, just to digress for a second, that your new dog, Louise, isn't able to read the sign that says recording in progress. Oh, Louise, <laughs> Louise barking during recording is a small problem in the world of Louise. Let me just I say think, that. I think Louise is just making her first appearance on Film Spotting, then it sounds like. Yeah, she's doing good. She's she's making progress. Uh, okay. We're encouraged by a Louise, but not perfect yet. Wouldn't, wouldn't you know? Less than yeah. three weeks in the house, she's not perfect. My honorable mention, summer movie questions. Will we survive the inevitable great master gardener discourse war of 2023? Mm. Paul Schrader, just just read the plot synopsis if you haven't already. I can't wait to see that film. Here's one. Will my appreciation for Cinqua Walls from Nanny actually get me to watch White Men Can't Jump? Oh, yikes. I missed I missed he was in that. He is. He's playing the Wesley Snipes character. Opposite oh, Jack Harlow. Yeah. Poor guy. I, I like Walls a lot. And yet I, I don't know if just partly due to timing factors and other conflicts in my life and priorities or because of my deep, profound appreciation for the original Ron Shelton film, I can bring myself to watch that on Hulu on May 19th. I'll go back real quick. May 19th is also when we'll get the new Schrader. Will theater camp? Be the meatballs slash waiting for Guffman mashup I didn't know I wanted. July 14th, that movie comes out. Molly Gordon and Nick Lieberman are the directors here. You also have Ben Platt in a starring role. Great ensemble cast, including Amy Sedaris. And finally, here's the question. Wait, who is directing Meg 2 The Trench? Who? I didn't see, I didn't see Meg 1. And I'm not saying... The name has me so curious, Josh, that I can't wait to see it. But for anyone who saw Ben Wheatley's first film, Kill List, Mm. and then his second film with Tom Hiddleston, High Rise. Now, I've missed some things in between where it seems like maybe he's made a little bit more conventional genre fare. 
but I've only seen those first two and those are bizarre twisted films. And I would have never believed then when I saw those two movies that Ben Wheatley would make this Jason Statham attacking giant killer shark movie. I, I, I can't wrap my head around it. It comes out August 4th. One for us, one for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe so. Those are our top five questions about the summer movie season. We would love to hear your questions or any other thoughts about this show. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also see all of our questions and those release dates and the links to the trailers at filmspotting.net slash lists. The Nandina is a species of flowering plant native to Eastern Asia. The smell at certain times of the year gives you a real buzz. Like the buzz you get just before pulling the trigger. Well, speaking of Master Gardener and that inevitable discourse, now you get the idea. Joel Edgerton making a perfectly reasonable comparison between the scent of a plant and murder in the trailer for Paul Schrader's Master Gardener. Yeah, from from my time gardening, you know, I, I don't remember experiencing that sensation, but to each his well, own. I was going to say maybe you've just never expressed it, Josh, but Perhaps. it's been there. It's been there deep within. Schrader's film about a gardener who harbors dark secrets is the third film in a loose trilogy, the so-called Man in a Room trilogy that includes two films I'm a big fan of, and I know, Josh, you love at least one of them as I do, that one being 2017's First Reformed, also 2021's The Card Counter with Oscar Isaac. Master Gardener comes out in limited release next weekend, including here in Chicago. And depending on how things shake out, it's a film we might talk about on next week's show. There's some new titles we're curious about. Sanctuary with Margaret Qualley and Christopher Abbott. And yes, Fast X is opening. But Master Gardener, probably the one I'm most excited about or excited to see what I'll make of it. So you'll have to see what we decide to do next week on Film Spotting. Yeah, I think that's the priority for me as well. So hopefully if things shake out nicely for us schedule-wise, we will have a discussion about Master Gardener. We will also continue, we think, our Sight and Sound Top 100 Marathon with Chris Marker's 1982 film Sans Soleil. Marker, best known for his inventive sci-fi short La Jate, which went on to inspire Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys. Sans Soleil uses doc footage shot around the world, mingling, quote, personal reflections with the history of the world, unquote. So again, just an easy time we're going to have next week, Josh, yes. with this marathon. Light material. So, yeah. Sans Soleil came in at number 59 on the Sight and Sound Critics poll. It is currently available VOD and on the Criterion channel. If you would like to view our entire Sight and Sound marathon lineup, check out past discussions, go to filmspotting.net and click on marathons. Also next week, Remind me, Josh, are we going to Cannes? <laughs> I mean, um, that's actually one we we discussed a couple of things. We discussed maybe South by Southwest. I, yeah. At some point, we were going to maybe hit Seattle in June. You know, those those did not come together for us. Cannes, I don't think we even pretended <laughs> like it was going to happen this year, unfortunately. Unfortunately, but you know what? I'm throwing this out there now. Oh, boy, here and we I'm go. Not gonna, I'm not going to get into any of the details yet, but just knowing some of the life changes that are in the near future for me, this time of May mm -hmm. may actually moving forward be an open window for me. Okay. So 
Let me know when the light turns green and we'll do it. Maybe not this year, but maybe next year we will see. The 76th Cannes Film Festival begins on May 16th and it runs through the 27th. A lot of intriguing titles playing the fest this year. So many, in fact, that we decided to build a film spotting poll question out of them. We're asking you, which film playing in competition at this year's Cannes are you most eager to see? Now, we did exclude one title that's playing in competition because it would probably win. And it was part of our last poll question. And we've already mentioned it a few times here in the show. That's Wes Anderson's Asteroid City that will compete for the Palme d'Or this year. Two other Anderson films previously have played in competition. Those were The French Dispatch and Moonrise Kingdom. We've talked about the theater test here before and applying that, Josh, where we say all you know is the director's name. That's above the the multiplex door. And you have to pick which one you're going to walk into. Well, that's truly the case here. We don't know much about these films. Not a lot of material out there. No trailers or anything. So we're really just going off of the directors and, I suppose, the titles of the film. You have to pick one that you are most inclined to see. All right, let's start with About Dry Grasses, which is the latest from director Nuri Bilga Jalan. It's the first Jalon film since 2018's The Wild Pear Tree, and he has had seven previous features playing in competition at Cannes. Winter Sleep won the 2012 Palme d'Or, and Once Upon a Time in Anatolia made both of our top tens in 2012, Adam. Next option, Fallen Leaves, comes from Finland's Aki Korsmaki. It's the fifth Korsmaki film to play in competition and the first since 2011's La Havre. La Havre was part of our Nordic Cinema Marathon. We also talked about Korsmaki's Man Without a Pass, that one from 2002. Third option, La Chimera, from director Alice Rohrwacher. Rohrwacher was nominated for an Oscar short this year. She also directed 2018's Happy as Lazaro and 2014's The Wonders. Both of those did play Can. Another choice here is May-December from director Todd Haynes. This will be the fourth Haynes film to play in competition, the first since 2017's Wonderstruck. We do have some cast information with this one. It stars Natalie Portman and regular Haynes collaborator Julianne Moore. Another choice here is Monster, comes from Hirokazu Koreeda. It's Koreeda's seventh film to play in competition. Broker played last year's fest, and Shoplifters won the Palme d'Or in 2018. Two more options for you here. One from a giant of international cinema, Vim Vendor's is back with Perfect Days. Nine of Vendor's films have played in competition. Perfect Days will be the first since 2008. He did win the Palme d'Or for Paris, Texas, a movie we revisited for a bonus show within the Mm -hmm. last year or so, Adam. Just incredible, that one from 1984. So Perfect Days will be the new one from Vendor's. And lastly here, director Jonathan Glazer will be at Cannes with Zone of Interest. This is the first Glazer film since 2013's Under the Skin and the first Glazer film to play Cannes. So let me run through those real quickly just to wrap my mind around all these amazing options. Nuri Bilga Jalan's About Dry Grasses, Aki Kurosmaki's Fallen Leaves, Alice Rohrwacher's La Chimera, Todd Haynes' May December, Hirokazu Koreeda's Monster, Vim Vendor's Perfect Days, and Jonathan Glazer's Zone of Interest. Yeah. All right, Adam, after all of that, easy pick for you? (sighs) No, not at all. It's really hard. I know that I can eliminate 
Roarwalker because I have not seen Lazaro or The Wonders. And I'm going to eliminate Karasmaki, even though I was favorable about both of those films and do see him as a major international filmmaker. I just can't put him quite in the same category as Jay Lon or Todd Haynes or Coreda or Vim Vendors. And I'm wondering if it's a super boring choice, but simply because of the curiosity factor. Jonathan Glazer, my favorite A24 film, which actually means something, one of my favorite films of the last 10 years, Under the Skin, was the last time we got a Glazer movie. And that alone has me probably most interested in Zone of Interest. After that, it'd probably be Vim Benders and Perfect Days. What about you? Yeah, it's hard not to go with Glazer for the reasons you mentioned. I think I am won over, though, by the stature of Vim Vendors and being back with something that I don't, you know, I don't know how these work, how the, a film right. is chosen for Cannes, but just the fact that he's going to be back in this context with a film first in since 2008. I think I'm going to go that way, though I could easily be swayed to vote for Glazer as well. For me, my pick will be Perfect Days, Vim Vender. In early voting, no real surprise to see that Glazer's zone of interest is way out of head, but you can still vote in that poll, change how the results come out. Leave a comment as well at filmspotting.net. It's right there on the main page. We wanted to touch real quick on last week's MCU villains draft and those poll results. We had fun putting it together and putting it out there into the world. And I really was wrestling after the fact, Josh, with trying to figure out who would win. I felt pretty good about my draft. But then I looked at your choices and I was like, oh man, he's got Tony Lee Young in there. Loki's an obvious good choice that people will be behind. Hella being Kate Blanchett. I really feared that I would lose this one. But then I also thought I did get the steal of the draft with Thanos at number five. And reluctantly, maybe, reluctantly. Reluctantly, but I still got him. At five. So I thought, I thought maybe, maybe I could pull this out. Now, again, we had fun with it. And Michael Bytel wrote in confirming my feelings. He said, Josh really had me with Hella, Wenwu, and Loki, especially. But Adam pulling that number five pick with Thanos was really where he got me. So I got Michael's vote, Josh. I don't know that either of us got a vote from RMP, though. Uh, it doesn't sound like it. Man, that whole draft is just a scavenger hunt through a rendering plant. <laughs> You both lose for participating. <laughs> I've never heard that expression before, but I may have to adopt it. Doesn't sound good. It doesn't. No, the results are close. We'll leave it open forever. I don't know that we need to shut it down or we'll pick a date. Why not? Right now, I'm just barely defeating you, Josh. It's 52 to 48. Thanos. Thanos. Thanos, Thanos may have been the guy who fittingly held all the power. You can vote. In that poll, if you go to filmspotting.net, click on the episode in question. That was filmspotting number 918. Our poll is there. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they've got a fascinating pairing. One, I can see the logic behind Josh, but I would have never come up with it. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, the new one from director Kelly Freeman, Craig, who made a film we both liked quite a bit, if I remember right, Adam, Edge yeah. of 17. Why not pair that with Todd Solon's Welcome to the Dollhouse? Why not? I mean, from what I've seen, everyone loves 
Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. They a do. A warm family I need film. to see it. So, so why not pair it with something a little more bitter, I'm assuming, probably? Sure. Let's go with a little more bitter. Okay. Yeah, I can't wait to see Margaret either. Speaking of Louise, who interrupted us, we were all ready to go over the weekend, Adam. Thankfully, had not pre-ordered the tickets. And yeah, had to take Louise out and... She likes to make these 45 minute to an hour sessions now, you know, before anything actually happens. Okay. It's not quite the case when you get her inside, then, then things tend to happen. So couldn't get to that showing. It's okay. Are you regretting this decision yet, John? No, no, there's, I've asked asked myself that question. Actually, I've gotten to the point where I realized this is where I would regret it if I regretted it Mm -hmm. and I'm not regretting it because she's just so cute and soft and sits next to me on the couch when I'm working on my laptop and already has tea time down. She knows tea time is like chill out time. So yeah, pro Louise, but it's taxing. And she did cost us a viewing of, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. I'll get to it. I will get to it. Back to what we were talking about, which was the next picture show. Your hosts there are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of the next picture show post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts and you could get more information at nextpictureshow.net. Мне часто снится этот сон. Я привык к этому. И сосны вокруг дома моего детства. Тогда я начинаю тосковать. Я жду и не могу дождаться этого сна, в котором я опять увижу себя ребенка и снова почувствую себя счастливым того, что еще все впереди, еще все возможно. Last November, BFI and Sight and Sound came out with their once a decade poll results, the top 100 greatest films of all time. We went through those lists. We came up with a joint lineup of the films that are blind spots, the films we felt like we most egregiously needed to see. And said, why not make that into a marathon? We'll have our listeners participate. We'll go through these films. Almost all of them are available on the Criterion channel, as well as other VOD or streaming platforms. And you just heard a clip from Andre Tarkovsky's 1975 film, Mirror. We've both seen some Tarkovsky, but this was one that had eluded us. Yeah, he's only made seven features, so you would think we would be able to knock those all out. We're getting there. We're making some progress now with this mirror-viewing. Tarkovsky started his career in the early 60s, and it ended with his death in 1986. He was only 54 at the time. Three Tarkovsky films made this 2022 Sight and Sound Top 100. Andrei Rublev, his 1966 epic biopic of the medieval Russian painter that landed at 67. Stalker, his metaphysical 1979 sci-fi film was at 43. And Mirror, I don't know, maybe this is a surprise after we've seen it, Adam, the highest ranked Tarkovsky on that list at 31. Interestingly to me, Solaris from 72, which I think you've said is your favorite Tarkovsky film you've seen, Adam, did not make the sight and sound list at all. Was that one you saw as part of a marathon before before I joined the show? It was actually Solaris and Andre Rublev were part of a mm, very okay. early film spotting marathon with now producer, then co-host Sam Van Halgren. Some words that come to mind when you talk about Tarkovsky, meditative, visually striking, 
We already used metaphysical. There, there are plenty of others I know we could throw out and probably will. Mirror is not a period epic like Andrei Rublev. It doesn't employ science fiction tropes like Stalker or Solaris, but it does, like those films, put you in a very particular headspace or require you to be in a very particular headspace. Using long takes, voiceover, and a nonlinear narrative, Tarkovsky shares memories of a dying poet from his own life and from the history of Russia. Did your previous Tarkovsky experience prepare you sufficiently for the mirror experience, Josh? Yeah, absolutely. Because I knew, even though it was some, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes in, and I had no idea it was about the memories of a dying poet. Right. I knew to just hang in there, right? Yeah. And and that doesn't mean that this is the one of the things I really want to talk about with this film. That doesn't mean that I would get all the answers at some point, either narrative or thematic or philosophical. It it just means that I was I knew to be comfortable with the mystery. And we've been talking about some very heavy, dense films in this marathon. And some of them, I suppose you're tempted to figure them out, right? Mm -hmm. What is this movie about? What is it saying? And that's part of the fun of movie watching. That's absolutely part of the goal. But this viewing of Mirror helped me realize with Tarkovsky in particular, that maybe you don't have to do that. And there's a little more freedom in Tarkovsky, in being confused, in embracing the confusion, embracing the mystery is like, as I said, maybe a better way to put it. And I just felt, I felt more able to immerse myself in the aesthetic qualities, the composition, Mm -hmm. the imagery, a performance I want to get to, which is, you know, performances are usually a strength of Tarkovsky. I think here I may have seen the best performance in a Tarkovsky film yet. And yeah, but mostly for me, it was this sense of letting go, not treating the movie as a puzzle, which let's say something like 2001. I think that's part of the game in 2001 and maybe more so with Kubrick. And I'm just becoming more and more comfortable with Tarkovsky. There's something I want to share from Paul Schrader's interestingly transcendental style as we get into this that that helped me get there. I just think Tarkovsky is a little bit of a different animal, these movies. And I was okay with that here, even though I did get my bearings a little bit more as it as it went on. I wasn't entirely lost in confusion. Yeah, you don't know that that's what it is 25 minutes in, but at some point you do become aware of a structure or at least an underlying structure, this sort of deathbed fever dream. You've got this this poet, this man who we hear in voiceover only see very rarely, and he's looking back on his life. He's looking back on his past. He's processing his memories. He's looking at his present, though, as well. And he's not, this is an endeavor of this film, I think, and of Tarkovsky's work, is that he's not dissociating himself and his life and his past from that of his countries. Mm -hmm. That seems to be something Tarkovsky is incapable of doing. But with whatever structure there is, it is a film that certainly defies looking for conventional meaning or following a certain type of conventional logic. I agree with you. I truly think this is a film that is meant to be experienced and meant to be felt and not to be explained or to be deciphered. And 
because of that, and because of some other things we'll talk about, I'm not totally surprised, actually, that it's the highest ranked mm. on that critics poll. And I'll say Stalker of those films is still one I really desperately need to see. But Bergman, Ingmar Bergman, is someone who has put this really plainly for me or helped me process Tarkovsky a little bit. And he said, Tarkovsky is for me the greatest, the one who invented a new language, true to the nature of film, as it captures life as a reflection, life as a dream. I'm guessing a lot of critics and directors see Tarkovsky similarly or put him on that kind of pedestal, whether they all say he's the greatest or their favorite, but someone who feels as if they've done something with that dreamlike nature of cinema that even though it's familiar terrain or some other filmmakers have employed it as well, it feels unique. It feels completely different when wielded by Tarkovsky. So that new yeah. language aspect, I think, is something you get even more here than you get in something perhaps like like Solaris or Andrei Rublev. And part of that, too, could just be simply that those are and this is not really accurate and selling those two films short, but they're genre films, quote unquote. Sure. I mean, Solaris is nothing like most sci-fi films. Similarly, Andrei Rublev is nothing like most biopics, but that might be a reason why, whereas this is a wholly personal cinematic processing, for yeah. lack of a better word. And I think that Tarkovsky exhibits an unmatched ability to transform the mundane into the miraculous. I'm sure you've got a couple examples. I've got a couple from this film. Yeah, that that's the heart of, of all his work for me, and especially here, I would say. But quickly, just, you know, I, I don't know that we've mentioned, but this, in terms of the personal nature, it is drawn from some of his own memories from childhood. And actually, mm -hmm. his his wife, mother, and father are all in the cast. I think it's the his father who we hear reading some poems. You know, we just hear his his voice. So deeply personal. And also to your comment about Russian history, that is an area where I do know there are puzzle pieces I'm missing. Sure. And if I had that knowledge, it would be an incredibly richer film. And I would understand more of what he is not trying to say, but wrestling with in terms of mm -hmm. identity as a Russian. I so, so I, you know, there's an entirely other conversation to have with someone who knows Russian history well that would bring or, a lot out. Or let me say this real quick. I think what you're getting at is one of the beautiful things about art is no matter how specific and personal it is, and usually the more specific and personal it is, the more universal it is. I think we can all have our own individual reactions to this film and the way it makes us feel. There is another level of reaction to it that someone from Russia who has, lived, who has lived through these same experiences and dealt with the same concerns and circumstances and maybe had the same complicated relationship with their home country, they're having a different experience than we can have. Yes, that's that's exactly right. Now, to go back to your your note about, you know, what Bergman said and what you were saying in, in terms of Tarkovsky's distinction, even among dreamlike memory piece filmmakers, mm -hmm. as you were talking, it struck me, it it's almost, you know, there is dream logic you hear applied to a film, right? Lynch, sometimes we hear that dream logic. And the distinction I think Tarkovsky has is he creates dream space and, and dream time. And you could apply, because this is also a memory piece more so, dreams are involved, but really a memory piece, memory space and memory time. 
And that is, it just feels different. It's not that you're having a narrative deconstructor told differently, which sometimes is how Lynch feels to me. Mm -hmm. um, a traditional noir narrative that's just being told from a completely different oblique pacing and angle. This is almost like Tarkovsky creates an entirely new space to experience memories and and dreams within. And that is where the piercing of the veil then happens within that space, which I do think, you know, the, the allowance for the miraculous is his defining feature. And so what are we talking about? What do I mean when uh, when I when I say that the dream space? Well, these are motifs we see a lot of throughout his films, the use of water invading interior spaces. OK, so there's there's a breaking in then where something should not be happening here. Water should not be falling from the ceiling. Why is it? It's not perhaps it's symbolic of something. But it doesn't have to be because the point is that it shouldn't be there and something is penetrating now. These these veils we put up within our reality are being pushed away and rules are being broken. Things are occurring in ways that they shouldn't. And again, that creates a different sort of space for me, not just a logic for me. And there are so many images that do this. Here's the defining one for me in Mirror, the, the elevating moment and it reoccurs a couple of times, but the first time we see it is the use of wind, how somehow he harnesses the wind. And another Tarkovsky film I've seen, uh, Nostalgia, I describe him as a sorcerer there because of the way he's using elements. It doesn't happen quite as much here in Mirror, but it does with the wind where a man is walking across a wheat field, I, I believe it is, and the stalks just start rippling around him. It's like the earth has absolutely come alive. And there's maybe sort of a narrative to that. There's a conversation that precedes it. And we might be able to put together some puzzle pieces. Why does the wind come now? To me, that doesn't matter. It's what matters is that it's another piercing here. And there is something outside of this world coming into the world as we're experiencing in it. This figure just kind of stops in his tracks and looks back. I love that touch. And, and it seems like he's just dumbfounded by what is happening and his experience then is kind of my experience throughout this movie and most Tarkovsky movies. Um, and so I think that's just a distinction. That scene for me is distinguishes how he is different than some of these other filmmakers. Yeah, that is exactly the moment for me as well. That's the first moment in this film, and it comes early in the film, that that kind of took my breath away. And yeah. I really was reacting with the same type of awe for what Tarkovsky was showing us that the man was feeling in the moment in that scene. And it is one where there's been a conversation. He's a doctor who just shows up kind of out of the blue. The speaker's mother is just sitting there on this, on this tree branch watching. They end up talking. He walks away. And as he's going through this field, and I did rewatch it just today to check. I think it's just leaves and grass. I don't, I don't necessarily think there's any, any wheat there, but he's, he's walking through some tall grass and the wind sends a shiver through the leaves and the grass and the trees, and then another. And you're right. The fact that the doctor doesn't just keep walking, he even stops to process it and look back at the woman is what, what heightens it. But the wind there is both completely natural and supernatural. Yeah. It's, it's slightly surreal. Like the wind is too perfect and too powerful to cause that exact 
effect. It's as if it can't just be the wind. There must be some other design at play, some other force compelling all this. And then not only are you thinking about any God figure, I'm thinking of Tarkovsky, the director as God figure. I'm thinking of the alter ego, the speaker who's standing in for Tarkovsky in this case, who's creating this entire story Mm -hmm. from his imagination, right? All of those things. I, I was actually kind of laughing to myself in the moment. I was so floored by it that, well, I don't believe that it just happened. It's not like his camera was rolling and the wind just drew up at that point and caused that effect, but doesn't it look like it? But it can't have happened that way. I I was thinking to myself, you know, who knows what type of special effect was applied here or what, what tool they use, but man, I think Tarkovsky just might be capable of summoning that kind of magic that feels like what he, he can do. And I'll give you another one too. And I think this really gets at what you're saying in terms of the dream space and there are a lot of filmmakers, as we've said, who who dwell in similar space and who I love. And Lynch is one of them. So I don't want to make this a Lynch versus Tarkovsky. No, 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 no. no that's, and you're I don't not, mean that either. I know you don't. I want to make it clear that I'm not comparing them or saying one is better, though I think that that analysis holds a lot of water and would be fascinating to do a deep dive on. The difference, though, between him and maybe what some other filmmakers we've seen do with that type of dream logic also shows up in the scene where I think it's the speaker's son, Ignat, and he is entering an apartment space and there's a woman sitting at a table, like at a desk Mm. and he's interacting with her and she makes him read something. And this is where the Russian history really comes in. It's a letter from, from Pushkin and it's got all this historical (laughs) weight to it. And he reads it. And then she says something to him like, open the door, look inside. And when he comes back, she's no longer there. And the suggestion is that she's never really been there probably. And this is all part of something he's conjured, the kid in his imagination. But he walks over to the table. He walks over where she was sitting and inspects further. And she had this tea mug or coffee mug. Mm -hmm. And the the condensation from it or the the evaporation, you know, it's it's in the process of disappearing. Yeah. And he stays on that until it completely does dissipate. And you watch that moment and you could you could look at that moment. I think the distinction I'm getting at here is that the whole thing itself is this dream logic set piece. You could have stopped there. But for Tarkovsky, it's about the imagery. It's about finding a moment like that, finding a visual metaphor that that heightens the dreaminess of it, heightens the mystery of it, that adds to this idea, was she really there? Was she not really there? Where, where does she come from? But the whole thing is a metaphor for this entire this entire film. It's it's like a memory that they they start out strong and they they dissipate over time and they they change shape and form. It's ethereal and something you can't really grasp. I mean, you just look at that that single image and you just sort of are in awe of it. Well, it's because it's also how it dissipates, which is the perfect word to use for it. It's somehow, and maybe the frame rate was adjusted for this. Again, who knows what what sort of conjuring is at work, but it's so slowly fades away. So it's not... It wants to insist on the persistence of this within the dream space. Like this really 
whatever you're seeing, you're really seeing it. It's not a flash. It's not like, well, wait, was that there too? It's like, no, this ring has been here and then it's fading away, almost like, like a reluctant ghost or something. It just fades, which gives it more feeling and weight within the moment, even as it's forcing you to question if it if it really happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of the the bird coming to land on the boy's hat. In the one sequence, yes. similarly, you know, what, what is going on? It, it's, it just snaps you to attention in a way and makes you alert to other possibilities that, that go on and on throughout the film. But should we, should we get to that central performance that it sounds like we both really appreciated? Yeah, and I, I will defer this to you, but I'll say I know we have to be talking about the same performance because even as we will both highlight the compositions here, just how painterly and precise everything is. It's that painterly and precise, even just when capturing a face inside a confined space because of that use of shadow and light. And it helps when the face is as striking and those POV shots in particular are so heightened because when you have this, this dream logic and when you have a speaker who's telling the story and we're mostly only hearing his voice, it's as if everything we're seeing is through his eyes. So when you have a character look back at you, look back at him and you as the audience, it's so much more potent. And all that potency is heightened when the face that's looking back at you is Margarita Tarakova. I spent most of this movie wondering how I had gone this far in my cinephile existence without knowing who she was. Mm. Do you have more on her background? Because I haven't done I don't. a deep, deep I don't. dive. I, okay. I did just go to IMDb, though, and saw a bunch of titles I had never heard of. Yeah. Well, they're mostly in Russian. It didn't look like she had a exhaustive list. So I would like to do a deep dive and understand, because she seems to me someone who should have had a remarkable career and maybe she did right but yeah, i mean the type possible. of career that that me you and other american film commentators in 2023 know by name right i did not know her by name i mean it could it could be sort of you know the dark side of the auteurist thing right no one talks very much i should say we don't talk very much and i'm as guilty of this as anyone probably about performances in in tarkovsky right it's all about him and his command but here we do have in margarita tarakova just a dominating acting presence that is crucial to how this film works. So she plays two parts, actually. Mostly she plays Maria, who is Mm -hmm. Alexei's mother. Alexei is the dying poet. So in these memories, he's remembering her as, I don't know, maybe late 30s, something like that. That's when we mostly see her. And Alexei is um, maybe in like a preteen, something like that. But then she also plays the adult Alexei's ex-wife, Natalia. So she is on the screen quite a bit and absolutely has, as I said, the dominating presence. And it works in a couple of ways. You touched on it, Adam. It's it's the the gaze that she offers with shift, mm-hmm. which shifts from a soft tenderness, you know, a motherliness. And there are a few moments here where, where all of a sudden this unnerving intensity bursts out from her. And that, of course, is suggesting the complicated memories, suggesting the complicated emotions everyone has with a parent and makes her, makes Maria become a figure who is both 
mythical, which mm-hmm. I associate more with Tarkovsky's characters, but also individuals. She's absolutely an individual right. mother. And of course, this layering is added because she's very good in the few scenes as Natalia, the ex-wife as well, bringing different characteristics and making these two distinct figures. But also, you know, obviously there are reasons. There are even voiceover references to why he's having the same actor play both parts, right? Because yes. Alexi is confusing his mother with his ex-wife as well, which, you know, there's a whole other conversation you could have about this as a very, Bo is afraid being a variation oh, on this movie. Did that come to mind for you? Oh, of course. This is this is a double feature waiting to happen. Yeah, there you go. We should probably sidebar that though for now. But yeah, Tarakova, incredible here. And then here's the other one. I didn't want to start with this because I didn't want to just say she's a striking model. Because there's way more to this performance mm-hmm. than that. But definitely part of it, especially when you're working with a filmmaker who creates tableaus, it is crucial that the human figure on the screen is going to be as arresting as everything else within the composition. And think about the sequence where she's washing her hair in a basin and it it just spreads across the water in these tranquil tendrils. And of course, this is Tarkovsky. We've seen it in other films, but the levitation moment where she mysteriously levitates in the air. So she she's bringing everything you need in a Tarkovsky film to be that figure within the frame, but also a deeply human individual within the personal story that Mirror also is. Yeah, her face is as hauntingly expressive as any face I can think of in cinema. And you're right to point out those, those moments that are maybe the grander flourishes like the levitating and the the water but it really is just those faces seeing her in close up or seeing her in a longer shot looking back again at the camera that that is so arresting and i just quickly did look at wikipedia was in plays in russian theater but really was only in 12 films between 1964 and hmm. 1990 and this one is the only film known to me by name. So I, I don't know why that is, because I think she, at least based on the work here, could have been a titan. And it's it's those compositions and it's how he uses her and it's how you said it so well, how she represents what this film <laughs> represents, which is going back to that idea of the mundane and the the miraculous. She captures something that is hard to grasp, that is ethereal, that is abstract, and yet seems so motherly, seems so feminine, seems so human. There's nothing about her that suggests that he's just using her. She's just a symbol Symbolic, of something. Right. Yeah. right. She she she's a real person. She is a flesh and blood person. And that that is something that Tarakova brings to that performance that's that's incredible. But there are these other compositions too, Josh. It's when I think he's looking back on his childhood and he's envisioning a moment where he's elevated up on a hill. Mm. It's winter time. Yep. It's winter time. There's a frozen river. Loved this. And all these, all these dark figures are down along the riverbank, dotting the landscape. And I see that come up and I go, I know that painting. Uh-huh. I've seen that before. And I've seen it because it's Bruegel. It's Hunters in the Snow, which is one of two Bruegel paintings I actually have printed small prints of and have frames hanging at my house. But he also did use that in Solaris. It's come up in at least one or two other films, I believe. It's a very famous painting and a great painting. And it's it's a moment that he just 
beautifully harnesses there in that scene, which again gives the whole thing this majestic quality where this this memory takes on something so much grander and romantic. Sure, sure. Yeah, it absolutely does that. And it, it's also a way of creating a new space right now. Yeah. Are, are we are we within the painting now? Have we some somehow been transported there? Because given what the rest of this movie is doing, that's very possible. You mentioned Bo is Afraid, and I do just want to include this because if we're talking about a movie that is one to be experienced and felt and and to be processed individually more than sort of understood. I have to mention two things that happen right around the viewing of this film for me. So we just talked about Bo is Afraid. Well, we also just talked about her bonus content for family members. And somehow I don't think we got to in our discussion, the line that is my favorite line in the movie and the idea that it provokes that I think is the most profound maybe in the entire film. And it's later in the film, Samantha and Theodore have had a difficult patch. They get online with each other. They start talking and she says something about how she was holding on to something from a previous conversation they had had something he said about her, something she couldn't understand because she wasn't human and how that still hurt her and how she was still thinking about it. And her line is what she realized is the past is just a story we tell ourselves. Now, if you really think about it, you sort of go down a rabbit hole with it. Like I did. It's not merely a really suggestive poetic line. I think it can really make you rethink how you view memory because what I think she's saying there is that, that everything that's a memory, everything that occurred in your past is just that it is in the past. And it is now not unlike someone else's narrative that you remember or latch onto or apply in certain instances in your life. It's now just a story that you are telling yourself. It's not happening to you. It won't happen to you again. So Whatever power you imbue that memory with, the hold it has on you, that's actually up to you. You have some say in how you moving forward, hang on to that. It is just a narrative. It blew my mind. And if I was building an essay about Tarkovsky in this film, particularly Josh, I think I'd probably start somewhere with that her quote, because I think, I think he is using the language of cinema to explore that idea of the hold the past can have on you, the hold memories can have on you and how you do successfully or unsuccessfully try to escape them. And something it made me think about as well, just a few days ago, I was back in my hometown of Grinnell. And I've mentioned this on the show before, I think maybe a long time ago, but I grew up in this house right along sixth Avenue in Grinnell. Not, not a nice house, not a nice piece of land or anything, no great view of anything. But for whatever reason, my first house, I completely over-romanticized that house as if it was this sort of paradise, you know? And I've even held on to this idea of someday I'm going to buy it. I'm going to own this house in Grinnell. Why would I own a second house in Grinnell, Josh? There's no reason to. <laughs> like I said, it's not a nice house. I would never do anything with that space. But something about that house it it does have this hold on me and and memories from it and one way that i think you can try to escape 
I'm, I'm projecting this onto Tarkovsky, but this is what his film makes me do is I feel like he, he tries to process them by recreating them and reimagining them. So he's taken, he's taken these stories and these moments from his life and he's taken the, the house. I think I saw somewhere that that, that house that in this story we see they escape to Moscow is getting attacked. So they go out to the countryside. He lived in a place just like that in this yeah, I exact think I, region. It's almost a recreation, I think. And he, yeah. he had to rebuild his house. Mm-hmm. So he rebuilt it. And the line somewhere was after he made this film, he no longer had dreams about his childhood home. Hmm. It was as if only after going through this experience, the, the, the movie making the film was the culmination of all those dreams was the envisioning of all those dreams. And once he, once he did it and once he, he wrestled with them and processed them, he, he didn't have to go back to it. I don't think it's insignificant either, you know, in terms of this idea of the past being the story we tell ourselves, which I think is very true. It's not insignificant. This is a character we learn who is, I don't know if it's entirely clear that he's actually dying, but certainly we come to learn fading health for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. And and so mortality is on the mind for this character. And you just think about the ways that that has to affect that story that you are going to tell yourself. Are you going to comfort yourself at that time about your past or are you going to provoke yourself? Are you going to be agitated by what you remember? And are you going to try to reframe that so that it's more palatable? I mean, this is a movie that is also, I think it, if you look at it as a deathbed reverie in a way, there's a lot of longing and disappointment here, a lot of loss and a lot of despair. And yet that is balanced for me um, by these mesmerizing moments we started with, where something indefinable penetrates those those mundane elements of living and dying and remembering living and dying and the mundane aspects of that. And this is when these stronger forces, as you put it, wind we covered, but we also see we touched on water. There's another building being engulfed by flame, right? Yeah. Those are forces that are strong enough as we encounter them. Here they're even stronger in a Tarkovsky film, which to me suggests something from, you know, a different plane. And and so I do want to come back to this this thing in Schrader's book. And I want to use this as an encouragement for people who are listening. You know, hopefully our enthusiasm have pushed them to watch Mirror if they haven't already or some other Tarkovsky. To be honest, I'd start where I started with either Stalker or Solaris, those sci-fi adjacent films that are mm-hmm. a little easier to enter into. But I would encourage you to see Mirror and and this from Schrader might. This is actually from the 2018 introductory essay that he wrote, Rethinking Transcendental Style. I've been revisiting the book just for the Schrader thing I'm doing over at Think Christian. And so he talks about Tarkovsky, this is related to what we were doing, being distinct from other transcendental filmmakers like Brassan and Ozu. Schrader says those those filmmakers seek to escort the respondent to another level of consciousness, a wholly other world. So he talks about them as spirit guides. And then Schrader writes that Tarkovsky, quote, was more interested in passing through the portal himself than he was in escorting the viewer. Hmm. And maybe that's a minor distinction, but for me, it really unlocked things because it made me realize we're free then to experience this portal that he's found or created in our own way and not figure out Tarkovsky's puzzle. You know, have fun putting those pieces together like we just did with the childhood home and stuff. That stuff's there. 
but not worry about completing the puzzle. Because I don't know that Tarkovsky knows the puzzle. <laughs> I don't know that he cares about a puzzle as as much as, again, as Trader puts it, going through the portal. And so, again, I just, I just really want to emphasize that this should not be as intimidating as perhaps we've made it sound, or certainly Tarkovsky's Agreed. reputation makes his films seem. I would second your notion that starting with something like Solaris and Stalker, again, Stalker is one I still need to see, but one that might be a little bit more accessible is the best entree to Tarkovsky's work. But I don't think it will take long for you to be ready for Mir. It's currently streaming on the Criterion channel and available VOD for the full sight and sound marathon lineup. Visit filmspotting.net and click on marathons. You will see not only that full lineup, but all of our past discussions and our past marathons. Josh, that's our show. If you'd like to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Film Spotting and I'm at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll has us looking ahead to the Cannes Film Festival, which opens on the 12th of May. We're asking which film playing in competition are you most looking forward to? And there are a ton of great options this year. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family over at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early. You'll also get it ad free. We send out a weekly newsletter, and every month you have the opportunity to get a bonus show. For April, Adam mentioned it in our mirror discussion. We did dive into Spike Jones's Her. At 10, family members, look for that. It is waiting for you in your feed. We've gotten some feedback on it. Michael Phillips, how about this? A blurb from Michael Phillips. A Michael Phillips blurb. It's that's it's like gold, man. He said, great app, man. Best film of that year. Okay. Michael was a big Her fan. Apparently, Andrew Howell also said it was a blind spot for me. So perfect timing to catch up with it. Great discussion. And Mike Merrigan shared this revisit was an outrageously good episode. Well, thank you, Mike. Who's going to argue with the godfather of film spotting madness? And we're patting ourselves on the back a little bit there, perhaps, though using others' words. But I do think it was a very good discussion. And if you like that film and you're inclined to seek out some additional film spotting every month, her is a good episode to start with if you become a film spotting family member. Now, you can also access our archive as a family member. If you go all the way back, and I'm not saying anyone should listen to these for the record, but they're there. <laughs> Andre Rublev and Solaris. Sam and I, we talked about those two movies together, joint Tarkovsky discussion as part of our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon. So we were admitting then with that name that they were Overlooked Auteurs by us. Three Auteurs, Tarkovsky, Ozu, Sam Fuller were the filmmakers. So back in February 2006, we talked about Andre Rublev and Solaris in the same show Josh, I, I don't know exactly how long we just spent on, <laughs> on Mirror, uh-huh. but do you want to guess how long the entire segment was about both of those films? Oh, man. Um, I'm going to guess, I'm going to say those were a little more formidable, so you yeah. might have gone a tad longer. Yeah. 14 minutes. Okay. See, I knew you were going to rightfully guess something really low. We were actually over 25. Okay. But but it was both of those films. And it's kind of funny to think about. We also did a top five on that show. The entire episode was about 51 minutes. <laughs> Inconceivable today. <laughs> Inconceivable. Now, before we finally close out this show, I do want to mention how good a film Solaris is and how much it's come up over the course of this show's history. 
we have to thank for this knowledge, Bill McLaughlin, a listener who embarked on a project, Josh, to listen to every show in the archive and make a letterbox list of every movie that's ever been mentioned. Now, not only that, he would list in the notes the show it was talked about on, the date, and why, why it came up. I've mentioned this before, or plugged it before, but it was maybe a couple months ago and he was up to 2012 or something. Well, now he's done. The Film Spotting Guide to the Archives. That's incredible. It's on Letterboxd. It's insane. It's such a good resource. <laughs> and I used it today to find out about Solaris. 3,848 individual titles that have been mentioned over the 18 years of film spotting. Quick list. Solaris. 88. Top 5 dystopias slash visions of the future. 114. Top 5 mind benders. 133. Top 5 scariest moments. 171, top five movies about memory. 234, top five movies about mortality. 368, top five losing my mind movies. 416, top five doppelganger movies. Number 437, top five movie locations we wish we could visit. I remember feeling like I was going out on a limb with that one. 540, top five streaming sci-fi movies. And 575, top five films of 1972. Sounds like Solaris should be in the Pantheon. I was going to say that as well. It probably should be put away, but I also wanted to highlight that letterbox list and say our thanks, our sincere gratitude to Bill McLaughlin for taking that time and his devotion to the show. We'll link to that letterbox list in the show notes for this episode over at filmspotting.net. Again, if you want to check out the Filmspotting family and all those benefits, go to filmspottingfamily.com. Streaming. One of the movies that made Josh's list, his questions about the summer movie season. Well, you can answer your question about the mother with Jennifer Lopez as a deadly assassin. That is out now, directed by Nikki Caro. Why? Well, you can also see the other film that came up as part of that question. Ben Affleck's Hypnotic. Make your choice in the Benifer battle. That's Are they directed still a thing? by. I should probably jump oh, in yeah. here and ask. No, Are they're, they... they're together. I think they're married again. Okay. All right. I think so. That's directed by Robert Rodriguez. Book Club is out the next chapter. That's Diane Keaton, Jane Fonda, Candace Bergen, and Mary Steenbergen. Fool's Paradise, directed by Charlie Day. And in limited release, you can see Blackberry, the social network, but Blackberry. We'll go with that. Directed by Matt Johnson that did just play the Chicago Critics Film Festival. Next week, a lot of potential films to talk about. May have a review roundup of sorts, or we might dive in to Paul Schrader's Master Gardener with Joel Edgerton and Sigourney Weaver. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.